welcome to the Empowering Agency Workers, a podcast for all temporary workers. If you're unsure of your rights, unsure how to find work, or just plain unsure, we're here to help. It's all too easy to be exploited, so your expert host, Julia Kermode, will empower you to succeed. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm really pleased to have with me Crawford Temple, who is um, the owner of Professional Passport, which audits payment intermediaries. And today we're talking about a report that he's issued, which is all about the good, the bad and the ugly within the, well, I would call it the umbrella sector, but um, I think Crawford calls it payment intermediaries, which covers stuff a bit more broadly. Um, And a bit about Crawford, he's an expert in this area. Um, I think he's been working in this sector for about 25 years, but I might be wrong. And I I could even think it's more than that, but I don't want to offend him. So Crawford, you tell us. (laughs) Well, I was working in and around the sector for probably a lot longer than that. My my main background was financial services, which might explain um, some of the stuff and my recommendations in the report. Mm. Um, And whilst in there, we were dealing a lot with contractors um, who were setting up their own limited companies and obviously were looking for financial services products in line with that. Um, and then when I decided to get out of financial services um, because the compliance was becoming so onerous, um, uh, I seem to have set up a company that's all about compliance. So I don't quite <laughs> understand that. <laughs> but yeah, um, and it's in the sector. So yeah, I've had a lot of experience from way, way back in the sector, uh, directly yeah. involved in it for probably uh, 20, 25 years, yeah. Indirectly okay. involved for probably, oh, I hate to say this, 30 plus years. <laughs> don't add it up, don't add it up. No, I'm not going to, no. <laughs> so suffice to say, um, you, you, you've got an awful lot of knowledge um, to, to kind of share. And, you know, the, the role that, um, that you have at Professional Passport is in relation to checking firms in this space for, for compliance. And one of the main reasons why we're talking today is that there's been a, a reasonable amount of criticism about some umbrella firms um, and the sector in general in kind of recent months and, and probably recent years, actually. Um, and your report that you issued that we will put a link to, by the way, with this episode, but your report outlines some thoughts around what can what can be done about it. So the first thing I wanted to cover off is your idea of compliance networks and how the umbrella sector might be able to mirror the stuff you saw going on within financial services sector. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been growing calls for um, regulation hmm. in the sector or the sector become regulated. Most of those calls refer to umbrella companies. Um, And I've always said that, you know, the history of the sector shows that if you narrowly define something, um, what the sector seems very good at doing is sort of taking a sidestep, avoiding that definition um, and then carrying on. Yeah. Um, So from the start of the calls of regulation, I've always maintained that it should be a payment intermediary definition. And that's a relatively simple definition to achieve. Um, In my book, it would be an organisation that interposes itself between the agency and the worker. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you've got, there's already very similar definitions sitting in legislation. Um, And that way you're not um, restricting yourself just to umbrellas. um, And it it creates a much broader aspect. Um, So, and I think 
what I agree with is the concept of regulation. So um, the but it's how it's gone about, because if you look at the majority of the issues that are thrown at the sector um, or come to light, um, the vast majority of them already have legislation in place to either prevent it um, or or say that it's wrong if it's done. And therefore, just by creating a regulatory body um, doesn't change anything. In fact, I think it will probably delay um, the enforcement of these things. So because you've effectively already got regulators in HMRC and Bayes and um, all the other uh, bodies that sit around. So for me, I'm looking at it thinking, well, if the rules are already there um, and they're being broken, um, but the people that are breaking them aren't being penalised, um, it's not about regulation. It's all about, actually about enforcement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I... where you replace the word regulation with enforcement, that's what then allows you to come up with a different answer. Um, yeah. And so if you look at enforcement, everyone was getting excited. I think it was Jesse Norman announced the they were going to extend the remit of the Employment Agency Standards Inspectorate to include umbrellas. Um, And for me, when I looked at that, if you look at the Employment Agency Standards Inspectorate, I don't know exactly how many um, enforcement officers they've got, but it's probably not many more than about a dozen. Yeah, and you've got you've got somewhere in the region of what thirty thousand recruitment companies out there. Yeah, if you then throw in not just umbrellas, but if you throw payment intermediaries in there, you've got even more, um, whatever that number be. Um, But they can't enforce on the 30,000 recruitment companies. No, no. So you get to a point where, you know, my experience in financial services, I'll go right back in time. um, When regulation first came into financial services, there were two bodies that were regulating financial services. One was called Loutro and one was called Fimbra. And Loutro okay. were regulating the life companies, so the big companies that had the big direct sales forces. And Fimbra were regulating the IFAs, which were all the little companies, often people running them from you know home offices and everything yeah. else. And what became very apparent very quickly to the regulators was that Loutro could go into a big life company that might have had a sales force of five or 6,000 people, spend mm. a period of time in there looking at all their processes and effectively have regulated 6,000 people. Yeah. Um, Fimbra would go and spend a week in someone's back bedroom looking through the filing cabinet yeah. and they've regulated one person. And so okay. it was impossible mm. for Fimbra to have effective regulation across the IFA market. And over a period of time and many changes and adaptations, um, what ended up happening was they created these compliance networks within financial services. And effectively what happened was if you were a small IFA, you had to join a compliance network. You couldn't be directly regulated. And the compliance network then became responsible for all the processes and procedures and ensuring that you're operating compliantly. Okay. Now, yeah. what that did was that changed the numbers of companies that the regulators were regulating yeah, because they I could see. go into a compliance network who might have had a thousand IFAs in it, let's say, and do the same as what they were doing with the big life companies. Look at all the processes and procedures from that network, go down and sample test it through various members, and then they've signed off a thousand IFAs and it didn't take them significantly more time than, yeah. you know, um, 
than it did with the with the large life companies. Yeah. And so yeah. that's where the market moved. And I think we've got exactly the same dynamic in this market. So yeah. if you've got 30,000 recruitment companies to have any payment intermediaries, you've already got structures sat there. Um, so you've got the recruitment company trade bodies. Yeah. Well, you know, is it such a big step for them? Because they're all banging the compliance drum. So is mm-hmm. it such a big step for them to then create their compliance network where the agencies become members of them? And their yeah. compliance network and they take that responsibility and you've got exactly the same position with the payment intermediaries where because recruitment companies are now um, looking for an accreditation mm-hmm. um, then you, you've got that same scenario where the compliance accreditations could take on a formal role and i want to come yeah. back to that point because um there is misperceptions about the role of the uh, compliance accreditations currently mm. um mm. but you take on that formal role um and it also puts a layer in there that means that anyone coming in to offer that compliance accreditation role you know there are significant risks and liabilities and that in itself will help maintain and raise the standards yeah. of what's happening so you you suddenly reduce the numbers that you're directly regulating large firms may well choose to go direct for their regulation and that's Mm -hmm. fine Um, and then what you would do if a firm within my idea if a firm is directly regulated and not within a compliance network and a recruitment company decided to use that firm on their PSL then my suggestion would be that the recruitment company then takes on the role of the compliance network so they have right. to carry out their own due diligence and checks. And if that uh, company that they were using, that directly regulated company that they were u- using, was operating in ways that wasn't correct, then it would be the recruitment company that holds that liability. And so okay. what you're almost doing is creating a position where the recruitment companies who have got the expertise and are of the size to do those due diligence and those checks to the required level and have the required knowledge can work with the large providers and very much well very little would change for them in that Mm. way but what it does do is it creates a a profile for the um, smaller providers um, or smaller recruitment companies where there's somewhere that they can rely um, on using those people um, and that due diligence responsibility sits within the compliance network. Okay, so there's um, there's loads of really good stuff in in all of what you've just said. Um, when you were saying um, about the employment agency standards inspectorate, by the way, um, I've got a shocking thing um, to tell you. There's quite a big recruitment firm, quite well known, um, and I obviously won't tell you who it is, but they had never heard of the employment agency standards guys, I'm and not they, surprised. they they are regulated by the way and I suppose it doesn't really surprise me um but that's because that's how spread that 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 kind of enforcement body is because I think you're right I think there's probably about 10 12 15 inspectors within there and they're tasked with managing enforcement for 30 odd thousand companies it's it's impossible so so um so I don't, I don't know yeah and they tend to a lot of their enforcement is targeted mm. so you know they will tend to target certain sectors or certain areas where there's a suggestion of sort of um widespread non-compliance yeah. um and therefore a number of recruitment companies will never experience no. it because they they never actually fall into that camp exactly and it's, it's absolutely no disrespect to the guys there because i think they they do a good job and obviously i'm sure you know them as as well as yeah, as yeah. well as i do and you know I, I think they do a good job in a challenging scenario which is why what you're outlining has 
so much potential because basically my understanding and it might be a bit simplistic is that it, it if if a firm is part of a compliance network then the guys at the who are enforcing this from the government level only have to check whoever's running that compliance network so it reduces their burden significantly have i got that right yeah um it, that's in essence the 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 trick of it the mm. challenge within it i think and and financial services went through this and i lived through it for a large part is that when you create these compliance networks, the compliance networks have to define quite tightly the processes because they're holding liabilities. And so you've got a number of providers, um, you know, if you imagine it as um, uh, how wide the tram lines are, you know, at the minute, uh, the tram lines are are whatever width they are, but you can Mm -hmm. guarantee that when a compliance network comes in, those tram lines that they have to operate within become far narrower um, and far more controlled. So with some providers, it would present a challenge for them and some recruitment companies, it may present a challenge if their sector um, also um, fell into that. But it, it, it basically it reflects the fact that the person who's running the compliance network is now holding significant liabilities. Yeah. The, other, the other thing which I haven't really touched on in the compliance report that I think becomes relevant where you've got compliance networks is that effectively you are creating a regulated environment Um, and what you could then quite easily do the next step of that would almost be what you've got in financial services where companies are paying into uh, in financial services it's the financial services compensation scheme uh, but you could have a compensation scheme um, you know almost like when you go on holiday and you've got the what is it atoll or whatever it is yeah yeah so you know you could have part of a levy within that um, and, and when you look at it, and you think, well, it's going to increase costs for people and all the rest of it. Um, well, my own belief is if we address some of the issues in the sector, like timesheet commissions and rebates and all the rest of it, mm. um, actually, I think most providers will be better off as a result of that if if you shut down yeah. that, um, that side of the business. Um, it certainly wouldn't fit and sit well if timesheet commissions and rebates um, was still an integral part of the structure of the business. Yes, yeah. I, I want to come on to onto that side of things um, uh, as as we chat. Um, but yeah, this whole concept of there being a compensation um, uh, pot of money for workers, I think is is. It, well, it's something close to my heart because, you know, I work is all about the workers. Um, and so that's what these podcasts are, are for. But at the moment, it doesn't seem to be very much cause for redress. So a worker might have an issue with um, a firm that might be a member of a recruitment trade body or one of the umbrella compliance bodies, payment intermediaries. Um, but how do they actually get redress? Well, those bodies can take action against their members, um, but that individual worker doesn't necessarily get any redress unless that member of that organisation decides to to offer them it. And I, I guess what you're outlining will give those bodies um, more teeth because at the moment I'm not convinced that they do have an, enough teeth. And, you know, I, I don't know what your what your experience or, or thinking is is around that from your perspective well in the report you know it's it's quite ironic really because i run a compliance accreditation um and i'm almost sort of talking against the compliance accreditation because <laughs> effectively 
um, what you've had in the market over the, the last couple of years is this growing reliance on compliance accreditations and mm. workers being told they can only operate through a particular accredited company. Mm. Now, there's lots of legislation that's come in that sort of um, grown the need for a compliance accreditation and recruitment companies to take that approach, mm. which I understand. And maybe some workers don't like that or don't understand it. Um, and I also get that. But there are... Uh, within the legislation, there's debt transfer that could be passed back to a recruitment company if they let contractors yeah. use any old. So, you know, there are always going to be constraints around who you use. Um, <clears throat> the, the, um, the problem with the, the accreditations um, is exactly what you say, which is whilst um, the accreditations will do their best job to ensure there is compliance, um, no accreditation holds any recognition in legislation. No. Uh, um, it holds a small part of the due diligence that a recruitment company should carry out. Um, you know, we work very closely with a lot of recruitment companies mm. um, to help them with their um, due diligence requirements. And they share a lot of information with us and Intel, which helps inform us and maybe yeah. identify companies that we wouldn't want to work with. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that's, it's as important uh, as anything. And, you know, you've now got a situation in the market and it's one of my soapboxes where, um, you know, non-compliance across the marketplace is, is, is at a level that I haven't seen at any stage before. Um, and that's really, I think, being fueled um, by the enforcement or lack of enforcement. So, mm. you know, particularly for your, your audience of um, contractors, um, if you look, there was a BBC programme on mini umbrellas uh, yeah. and it made clear that they provided the revenue with 48,000 companies back in 2019 and hadn't seen any action taken. Mm -hmm. The revenue argues, I think they've um, taken out 20-odd thousand companies, but there's still no formal action and none of those providers have had um, any action taken that I can see. No. Um, and yet when they identify a scheme where a worker has been put into a scheme and maybe not paid the correct tax, um, you know, they go straight after the workers. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, for, in my eyes and the argument I have with the revenue on a regular basis is the worker is the soft target. Now, whilst, you know, there is clear evidence that some people are uh, knowingly going into these schemes yeah. and seeking them out, there are, there's also a significant proportion that are being duped into them. And I call it the um, perceived compliance because a number of these providers will say, well, we've been doing this for three years. We've got it on our website. If it wasn't compliant, you know, the revenue would have, the revenue would have shut yeah. it down. And, and you know, I can understand why a contractor would believe those arguments. They'll also yeah. support it with, here's a barrister's opinion or whatever else. Um, and the bit that goes wrong is where these schemes are being promoted, and it's almost on an industrial scale now, um, contractors are joining them. But in all cases... Um, I can't remember a provider that's had action taken against them to recover the money. No. Um, and it's always the contractors. And so if you've got people who have got no problem ripping other people off, knowing that they're going to suffer the loss, and in a lot, a lot of cases where a worker uses a disguised remuneration scheme at the end of the whole process, they will end up with less money than they would have done had they done it compliantly in the first place. Mm. Um, but where you've got people using these schemes, and the providers know they're going to keep all the money. Some of these providers are making a lot of money and yeah. keeping it and then walking away, leaving people with life-changing debts um, yeah. being pursued yeah. by the revenue. 
And until you change that dynamic, so the revenue needs to start going after these providers um, and using their powers there. And I've been banging this drum for as long as I can remember mm. um, around enforcement. And, you know, the, the bit that really doesn't make sense, which is really from about 2014, is there are two, a lot of contractors don't understand this, and this is where the risks sit for them, where they're yeah. using a, a, um, a, what I call a have I got a good idea for you scheme, <laughs> is the revenue gets a piece of information from the recruitment companies, which tells the revenue every single worker that's been paid by that recruitment company and how much they've been paid. Mm. Um, and within that reference document, there's a contractor's national insurance number. Yes. Um, yeah. And so the revenue's got all the information on everything that a worker's been paid by or been sent by the recruitment company. And the recruitment company makes that report on any worker where they're not applying PAYE themselves. Yes. Yeah. Then on the other side of it, you've got real-time information, the RTI system. Mm -hmm which means that whenever a worker is paid through PAYE, they will appear on real-time information. Mm -hmm. Now, what I haven't, I've never really got to the bottom of is, and it can't be that difficult, if any of your workers are IT contractors, then submit a proposal to the revenue um, on this process mm -hmm. because it can't be that difficult for the revenue to write a program that analyzes across the national insurance number, the amount that's been sent in a period by a recruitment company and the amount that's been paid under RTI. Yes. And, you know, yeah. if, if these reports come, the um, uh, intermediary reports come in quarterly. So in theory, if they had a program to identify it, they could very easily on a quarterly basis pick up every disguised remuneration operator. Yep. They could then um, take action like security notices or whatever else, because I think they've got enough evidence there to suggest there's a risk of non-payment PAY and VAT. Mm -hmm. So they could issue security notices, which would then stop those providers trading. Yeah. And they could inform the workers. Now, even at that point, if they went after the worker, the worker is facing maybe three months' worth of additional tax yeah. and there is an argument to say well they've had additional takeout pay so all they'll be doing is putting themselves back to where they would have been had they operated the compliant um with a compliant provider yeah the issue that happens is when it's two years hmm. so because yes. the revenue is not proactively chasing this if you're a worker and you've been in one of these schemes knowingly or unknowingly for two years suddenly the tax bill that arrives can be life-changing um yeah. and that's where the problem is um and i think you know when you talk to a lot of people if they've been duped into a scheme yes they think that the person that's duped them because they're paying a, a fee for being in that scheme should become responsible for it and i entirely agree with that mm. and so what what we're proposing and pushing for is that where you can prove the revenues had the information um i.e through the rti and through the um uh, intermediary reporting and hasn't yeah. used it you should have a situation like you've got say for instance with the self-assessment tax returns where if you fully yeah. disclose your information on the self-assessment tax return the revenue has got 12 months to open an inquiry and take yeah. action mm. um and if they don't then unless they can prove that there was something that wasn't disclosed that would have changed that position they're going to struggle um now you should have a similar position here because you know the revenue is getting all the information quarterly maybe they need a little bit of time to um 
uh, to analyze it and take their action. Um, but, you know, whether that's six months, nine months or 12 months, it certainly should not be beyond 12 months. No, and if no. they don't identify it within 12 months and take the action, I believe they should be prevented from going after the contractors yeah. and they should only be able to seek redress from the promoters or providers of those arrangements. And by doing that, you're then building in um, an incentive for the revenue to start using all of this information. To be fair, yeah. businesses have spent a lot of money putting systems in to, to make these reports and businesses get fined if they're late on the reports. And you'd go, well, why are you finding them for being late when you're not even using the information anyway? Exactly. So exactly. You know, the whole thing is there seems to be a huge amount of, um, I don't know what it's called, non-accountability or unaccountability yeah. or whatever else around the whole thing where they keep asking for all this information. And all that seems to happen is when they identify a provider that's not doing something right, they go back and say, oh, they've been doing this for two years and then go and hit all the contractors with massive bills. That for me is fundamentally wrong. They must have a duty of mm -hmm. care against, you know, uh, for the workers um, and if someone is duped into it, the sooner they can find out they are, then the sooner they can address it. And, yeah. you know, so the revenue argue that they're now sending letters out if they suspect that's the case. And the trouble is those letters in a lot of cases, you know, I personally had one. Well, I'm employed by my own business. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I got a letter from them saying that they believed I was in a tax avoidance scheme, wow. um, which I thought was quite an interesting one. <laughs> so how they pick these things up, I've got no idea. It feels no. like it's a bit of a fishing expedition. Um, mm. And some of the providers, you know, we've seen letters from providers who the revenue had recently signed off all their processes. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it's just like, you know, th there doesn't seem to be any real um validity to it they're just firing thousands of them out mm. and creating further panic and i think yeah. if there was a more structured and considered approach to it which coupled action notifying workers as well as action being triggered on the providers then you'd have a different marketplace yeah and what you're saying is in essence that hmrc has this information through their rti reports and the reports that recruitment agencies and intermediaries send them so why aren't they using it and you know it drives us absolutely mad in the sector doesn't it when when we see that there is seemingly no enforcement going on and then the and as you say these workers are getting letters after two years or whatever now i know of instances where workers have received those letters but they're like well it doesn't make any sense to me and besides which i'm working for the nhs or you know whatever it might be and they absolutely trust that their that their wages are being processed properly they trust the yeah. recruitment agencies and it does call into question for me the amount of power if you like that recruitment agencies have over this supply chain because i think a lot of workers who are just too busy doing their job um are perhaps too trusting of of who agencies are recommending to to them i, I know it's a tricky subject so i just wonder what your thoughts are well i think i think the other part on the other part on that is some some of the letters that I've seen that have been written to workers, you know, will terrify yeah. the life out of them. You know, if it's out of the blue and they get it. And what tends to happen is workers then just retract into their yeah. shells and don't yeah. deal with it um, because it frightens them and they've got no idea of what the levels or the risks are. I mean, the, the thing is, what, what's happened in the sector, going back to the mm. compliance accreditations, what you've got to try and do is get the compliance accreditations as robust yes. as you possibly can. Um, and whilst, you know, 
I'm sure all the compliance accreditations make significant checks. We go into a lot of detail. Um, but, you know, if someone wants to lie to you uh, and they're prepared to lie and provide fake information and there's nothing mm. that would question that, then, of course, they can still get through. How long they get through a compliance accreditation mm. is a different question because typically um, our approach to everything is being completely transparent and shining a light on everything um, so that should someone get through, um, hopefully very quickly we would have someone say, oh, I've just been yeah. offered this or I've just been offered that and our terms uh, allow us to immediately remove a provider if we get any evidence that yeah. suggests anything like that. Um, but, you know, it's got to be close on a year now um uh, and we've provided the structure for the revenues to do this because the revenue actually is the only organization that holds mm. all the data so we've said to the revenue look when we're doing a compliance accreditation why don't we have a provider give an authority to allow us to write to you and do a comparison on their intermediary yeah, reporting yeah. information yeah and the rti Perfect. returns and then what you can do what you can do within that you, is you can agree percentage parameters for mm. pass and fail. So you, the way we've structured it avoids any issues on GDPR because there's no personal data, and it all but almost becomes a pass yeah. or fail test that has to be carried out on any provider that, that is going through in a compliance presentation. Now, you know, you can still have a provider who would pass that and then suddenly later on yeah. do something that they shouldn't be doing. But if the revenue's got the system to be able to analyze that proactively, you could then implement that almost on a three month yes. or a six month yeah. basis. Um, and you know it almost becomes a, a standard reporting from the revenue to the compliance accreditations, which um, helps hold the integrity of those, integ uh, those compliance accreditations yeah. and the providers. And I don't know why the revenue is resisting doing it um because that way in at the end of the day what's happened in the market as a result of things like criminal finance act and all the rest of it um is compliance has mm. gone up the agenda and many companies are saying you've got to have an accreditation otherwise we won't deal with you or let our contractors deal with you um and so and a lot of companies are relying on those accreditations as i said before even though there is yes. no real basis and while everyone's trying to do the best job they can um you know there is no basis for recourse or compensation from mm. workers or anything else and so what you have to try and do is make them as robust and strong as possible to protect the um integrity of the compliance review but also protect the people that are using yeah. those providers um and i can't understand why the revenue uh, isn't open arms when we've explained to them the process and the structure and how they could do it based on their existing framework yeah. of arrangements like the agent uh, arrangement uh, and they're still resisting it and it just for me it doesn't make any sense at all if the revenue are really that keen on stamping out this guy's remuneration protecting contractors from these schemes rather than issuing you know pr yeah. notices and guidance which only have limited um entry into the market they should be helping us yeah. make these checks and working with us to ensure the robustness of them and nothing's underhand it will be done transparently and the providers who are asking for an accreditation would yeah. know this is going to be carried out and that in itself would create the barrier to entry 
for anyone who's trying to run a have I got a good idea for you scheme. Do you know, I love that, that whole have I got a good idea for you. It really does sum up some of these schemes. So um, Crawford and I ended up chatting for over an hour. So rather than a really long episode, I've decided to split the recording into two podcast episodes. So I'm interrupting our conversation now. Um, I think you'll agree it's been really interesting so far. So please make sure you tune into the next episode where Crawford and I will talk um, quite a bit more. Um, We're going to cover loan schemes, what's currently going on there, and also some really good quick wins that Crawford is suggesting that HMRC could bring in that would actually be really beneficial for workers that are working through umbrellas. So make sure you join us next time. Thank you for listening to Empowering Agency Workers, hosted by Julia Kermode. For more information on today's discussion, please visit iwork.co.uk, where you can also join our growing community. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, then we would love you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. We'll be back at the same time next week.